This is episode 90 with Derek Miller. This is Crowdfunding Uncut, the place where creators and entrepreneurs come to learn how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Here's your host, Kirsten Ross. This episode is brought to you by BackerKit. BackerKit is a crowdfunding fulfillment software service that helps you take care of all the spreadsheet nightmares after your campaign is done. Let me explain. Once you have hundreds of new backers for your product, you're going to be exporting a ton of customer data that is probably going to change. People will need to change their shipping address. They'll want to downgrade some of their rewards. They'll want to buy more rewards. And when you don't have a system in place to help with this, it's actually going to be taking a lot more of your time dealing with customer service admin, and you're probably going to screw stuff up, which is not good long-term for customer relations. BackerKit gives you a full done-for-you software platform online where you can easily manage all of your customer data. And my favorite part about working with them is that once your campaign actually wraps up, they help you get additional sales from your customers by offering to upsell to more rewards or options that you may or may not have on your campaign. They have worked with more than 2,000 projects, delivering more than 3.5 million rewards um, and products. This could be digital products or, heck, even physical products to you guys. They've been amazing to work with. I've partnered with them on the show because I've worked with them in the past and they are amazing. So if you are looking for a partner after your campaign, that's going to make your life super easy. They are the ones to go to. To find out more information, go to backerkit.com. But wait, at checkout, they're actually giving the uncut listeners, which are you guys, going to give you 50% off of their setup services. So when you go to backerkit.com, go to checkout and use the five code uncut, U-N-C-U-T. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. It's Kirsten. Again, you can find us at crowdfundinguncut.com. I have a really great one for you guys today, and I actually didn't know you know, full disclosure, I didn't know what angle I was going to be on and have with Derek Miller until I got him on the show and I was just like, can you tell me a bit about the campaigns that you've supported, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out, so Derek was, uh, he ran the Side Night in Happiness and the Joking Hazard campaigns, which were like, I don't know if you want to call them Cards Against Vanity's nemesis, but very, like, it's a Mm -hmm. cool, (laughs) weird card game like that. And they went on to raise more than 3.2 million. And since, like, for the last three to four years, he's He's been doing what I do, which is work with six-figure-plus campaigns, um, which I'll let him get into which ones. But one thing I noticed when he started like listing off which campaigns that he's done, they're all like really weird. And weird is good because with Cyanide and Happiness and a few of his other campaigns, he had issues with getting Facebook to allow him to run ads. So the question I want to dig into with this campaign, with this um, podcast, is how the heck do you market something when you're doing something like sex toys, cannabis-related products, or ones that are just offensive to the public, and you can't do the typical paid advertising route that I do? And Derek loved that angle. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to let him introduce himself, and then we're just going to get into the episode. So, Derek, I'm pumped about this, and why don't we start with you um, just giving an out uh, where you started with this whole thing. Great. Uh, so, yeah, I started in 2013 with uh, Cyanide and Happiness. We, uh, what had happened is the guys had been into animation, went to Hollywood, and got just some garbage deals um, and started seeing, you know, 
how do we make an animated series the way we want without having to give up our intellectual property, without having to compromise on what our mission is? You know, basically basically making weird, kind of offbeat humor. Um, so I came on in 2013 to help them run their first Kickstarter for the Cyanide and Happiness show. Uh, went well. We rate, uh, we shot for 250. Uh, we got 770. Um, and then from there, we started learning uh, what it means to really deliver a campaign. Um, that's kind of when I started getting the idea for a book and realizing the need for helping with Kickstarters um, in particular is just the complexity and the ways it can spiral and bubble out of control, you know, uh, with just simple little decisions you make during the campaign. So I'm very proud we got that first campaign out. Uh, but we learned a lot of lessons the very, very, very hard way. Um, I'm sure we can get into that in a bit. Uh, so we took the lessons from that. In the meantime, I did some consulting for projects, um, just fun stuff with friends. I had a friend who did a, uh, a creepy, creepy children's stories uh, for kids called um, uh, Kindergarten, which is a great project. Um, so I did some consulting there and started learning a little bit more about what it means to put together a campaign. Uh, so then we put out in 2016 the Joking Hazard campaign, so kind of the Cards Against Humanity-ish a uh, reverent party game thing, and that one, we, we applied all the lessons we learned from the first campaign. Really, really proud and pleased of it. We got uh, $3.2 million on it, and uh, ever since then, I've been kind of interviewing creators, uh, a lot of projects that have pulled, you know, six or seven figures, and just kind of figure out what it is that makes those campaigns successful, both during the campaign and after the campaign in the fulfillment production process. So that's kind of been my story. Uh, I also helped with the Awkward Yeti campaign, um, which is another really great guy. I love Nick. Uh, and so it's just been kind of a, a fun little journey of helping people build brands that, uh, you know, are just a little bit offbeat, not something like a standard 3D printer or a drone or something like that. What do you love about what you do? <clears throat> um, probably two things. One, uh, I really love the way crowdfunding enables us to, you know, uh, call the shots by, by having a community behind us. And instead of, you know, having to answer to investors or specifically like one editor at a giant firm, we can do whatever we want. Like our, our writing process from season one of our show to season three has not changed. Uh, we basically write what we want, write what we want, and then just start producing it. Uh, so that's fabulous to be able to to have that kind of freedom with your creative project, but still have the funding to be able to pull it off. Um, the second thing I really like is the uh, the positivity of the crowdfunding community. It's a uh, it's a very welcoming community, and there's not there's not uh, a lot of people trying to guard trade secrets. You know, a lot of the the stuff I'll be talking about in my book, and a lot of stuff all of us have learned have been through mentors or just emailing campaigns who've previously you know run big campaigns. Go, hey. Can you help me out? How did you pull this off? It's a very just supportive community, and I, I love that. It's it's a nice change of pace. I, I so agree with that. But just to preface this a little bit, um, sixfigurecrowdfunding.com, Derek's getting ready to launch a book. So if you want to be on mm. that wait list, go there. Um, forgot to mention that at the beginning. Oh, but yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's cool. I'm just like, I got your back. Uh, but in terms of the community, it's crazy. Like I actually found my PR company by reaching out to one of the past campaigns that I interviewed. And because um, I have a client who's launching a similar product and I was like, oh, just here's a connection. I'll see if they are willing to talk to you. And they like 
gave so much insight. And we're like, by the way, here's our PR company. It's like, that's just, it's like we're looking out for each other because we know how hard the process is. <laughs> and I'm still like, you know, I, I saw in, in your book that you have um, Nettie Shalga of Giro, like it just, he was so forthcoming with their strategy with and what I they did. And, but that's like what we can expect with creators. They just don't come onto a podcast and are like, I'm just not going to tell you everything. They just like, just vomit all the good stuff and it's like I love this mm-hmm. but That's, it's a wonderful environment yeah it's very different to um, like the Amazon community because a lot of those guys are I mean they're awesome but they're so guarded with what products they sell because they don't want someone to rip them off right so different right but so that's that's amazing and um, what would you say is your favorite project you've worked on uh, I'm going to say just because of the pure fun we had running it, uh, the, the joking hazard campaign, we, we, it's, uh, it's good to finally have a chance to kind of correct all the stuff that was difficult with the first campaign, but that kind of confidence allowed us to do a lot of weird promotional stuff, which uh, I can just tangent into, um, Let's that, that made it, <clears throat> that made it a really great, uh, campaign. So one of the, one of the thoughts I've, I've had and been having for a while is kind of the, I feel like traditional methods of stretch goals are uh, overrated and there's better ways to do it than just, Hey, if you give us an extra 50,000, we'll unlock some new feature. So I see a lot of value in stretch goals because it, and you know, it, uh, it uh, emboldens backers, makes current backers want to promote your project more and draws in, you know, people upping their pledges. But we had a lot of fun with uh, what I call achievement based, uh, achievement based campaigns. Uh, our stretch goals. Uh, we kind of got that from uh, Exploding Kittens, um, but it was a treat. We set up every single stretch goal as kind of like a video game level, and there were seven achievements you needed to unlock out of ten available to uh, go to the next stretch goal. So what this enabled us for is one. I mean, we still needed you know extra backers. You know, the goal was still to get money, but the way we got there was so much more fun. We um, we invented a lot of just really silly, purposely stupid tiers, uh, and the you know just one because we thought it'd be funny to do, but two, uh, a lot of them were based around stuff, um, ways that backers needed to post photos of them interacting with other people, interacting with other friends, interacting with their family, to unlock additional tiers, and what that the kind of the purpose that served is. Kind of the same thing as a normal stretch goal of, you know, asking for money, but this made it a little much more fun. It made it an event and it gave us free marketing content to use for the rest of the campaign and the the rest of the project. So I'll give an example of that. One of the ones we thought of, uh, one of the achievements in one of the later levels was we need a hundred people to have a photo of them and their dad and their dad has to have the word fart written on their forehead on a Sharpie. Um, because we thought that was funny. <laughs> oh my and, God. And, and thankfully the fans did too. Uh, there's a lot of really awesome, cool dads who, uh, who were able to, you know, just take a joke or something like that. But you know, not only does that help build your campaign and it's, it's funny to us, but that's, that's a marketing story. You know, that sort of thing is something people will organically post on, you know, uh, all the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, whatever, and say, hey, this campaign asked me to write fart on my dad's head. And he actually said yes. Like that, that's a great story. And yeah. it, it's fun marketing that works. You know, it's, it's, 
You don't have to pay for it. Fans love doing it. I love seeing it. So I don't know. I, I've become much more skeptical of traditional stretch goals in favor of just achievement stuff. So I have your achievements up, and you guys had, what, 64,000 backers. So you had the community to do this, but these are ridiculous. Like, you have 50 disgusting drawings of your pets, 200 photos of people putting as many layers of clothing on as possible. Yep. Um, this is my, what was it? Um, I don't get this one. One person pleasing the king with their secret talents? So <laughs> that, that was kind of a in-joke from our our, uh, our web series. So season one of the show, we had a... Uh, a short thing where basically uh, a short little, I guess, sketch where people would do crazy things to try and please the king. So that was kind of a wild card where we wanted people to just post us their secret talents and we'll pick the one we like to unlock it. So it's, it's a, re- it's a really like discretionary sort of one, but uh, we got some, we got some really great talents out of there. Yeah. I'm just thinking, cause like there's this, uh, this, um, question that I never really seem to know how to answer just depends on the campaign but it's like just say we're doing the stretch goal thing um, I don't like part of me doesn't like announcing the stretch goal levels until we launch and we actually know what numbers we're going to hit um, yes. right because mm-hmm. but I, I think it's important to know what your stretch goals are and what you need to do to achieve that um, beforehand so you know your costs and all that but what I really like about the achievements is you can set those and it's like a a conversation from day one you know mm-hmm. yeah you, you read my mind on that one so all the all the numbers we have on here before we launched any sort of tier they'd all be you know blank numbers we take our first guesses in the level and see all right how long would it take to do this one is this an easy goal is this a medium goal is this a hard goal and then we'd see how fast uh, the achievements get ticked off you know our goal was to basically go through uh, a new level of stretch goal every three to four days and if things were going too slow on one level we could lower the achievements for the next um, lower the difficulty of the achievements for the next level or raise the achievements, and we could kind of, uh, kind of gauge how our stretch goals are going during the campaign. And that was, that was a, a great tool. I'm very glad we were able to to pull that off because it kept the excitement and the energy going without, you know, anyone getting stuck on a certain level. Ridiculous is good marketing. I mean, mm-hmm. so that brings me to like, I had someone reach out to me um, about a campaign they were doing with, it was like a cannabis-related product, and mm-hmm. he's like, I can't advertise on Facebook and I can't do the traditional marketing that you you talk about. What would you recommend? And offline, you and I were talking about how difficult it was to do some traditional advertising for some of these campaigns, like when you do something like Joking Hazard or Cyanide um, and Happiness. So like, wh- I'd love to dig into, uh, for one, do you have a specific story or instance when this really messed with your strategy and you had to pivot? Yeah. So, um, Facebook ads are obviously a real big part of any sort of crowdfunding campaign, but we've had situations, um, prior to this joking hazard campaign, which put us in a, a big old freak out, good old fashioned freak out right before we launched. But, uh, we had a product called the F bomb, uh, and essentially what that was is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bomb with the word F on it. And we use the word, you know, uh, fuck all over through the campaign. Wow. So Facebook saw that ad, read it, and then locked our ads account. And we had to go through the process of not only petitioning there, but for every single page on our website and uh, our, our store page, we had to scrape out every single case of bad language from the page. 
in order to get the account up wow. back in time for the joking hazard campaign. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're at a risk with advertisers. I mean, uh, you know, the, one of the downsides of the free internet is that it's it's funded by advertisers, and even if there's not explicit censorship, uh, as we've seen in multiple cases of you know uh, our videos being demonetized on YouTube, there is kind of a limit to what you can say and still get paid by advertisers or have ads run on them. So to to tie it back to your question about the uh, the community for like a cannabis based product, if you can't rely on that stuff, that uh, yes, it is a hindrance, but you need to find ways to, I know this is kind of cliche, but engage the community. You know, there, there are ways and there are tribes of people who have gathered. Uh, the first one that came to my mind in this one is the r slash trees community on Reddit. They're very irreverent. They like posting memes. They like talking about weed. And so you could come to that community. Uh, ideally, you'd want to be integrated with it, you know, prior to the campaign, they go, hey, I'm trying to launch a Kickstarter, but Facebook won't let me run ads. Do you love me, trees? Or something like that, you know. Uh, that's just off the top of the head. But uh, you really need your fans and people in your tribe to market for you when you're trying to market off-color stuff, when you're trying to market stuff that um, has limitations on what you can actually put uh, in advertising. And when do you find that? Is most of okay? No, that's not what I want to ask. I want to ask like, you know, the build up to a campaign is huge. Uh, getting an mm-hmm. audience, getting people ready and excited to back you when you go live. So, what are some things like we talked about being in the subreddits relative to your thing? Um, mm-hmm. What are other things like say the top three things you would recommend we we do if we can't turn to traditional advertising? Uh, one of the things you got to find, uh, I call I, I, sticking with the Seth Godin tribes thing. I call them tribal elders, but there's always people of outsized influence within any sort of community, be it heavy metal, which I'm a metalhead, love heavy metal, uh, or you know, in this case, cannabis culture. Um, a really great way to be able to uh, ingratiate yourself to a community is even getting yourself to a uh, uh, getting campaign advice from people in your community, you know, but before you're even trying to sell a, a Kickstarter thing, approach people, let's say in the cannabis blogosphere or even uh, cannabis lobbyists, um, like on Twitter, any sort of area, but just start picking their brains and like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of launching this, you know, I really want to help support the, the can, you know, the pro cannabis community, but I'm not sure how to do this campaign. What do you think? And by asking that process, not only, uh, again, people are surprisingly positive in the crowdfunding community and even uh, helping with it. Um, not only will they give you great advice, which customer feedback, you need that, um, but they'll also kind of become, you know, they'll watch your project. Anytime you give advice to a campaign or project or something, you feel a part of it and you watch it. You know, you want it to succeed because it has your advice in it. You know, it's uh, it's obviously not that uh, overt, but you know, if you, ha- if you offer, let's say you offer a kid career advice and they end up being, you know, a really fantastic, uh, you know, leader in their field, you go, yeah, I got, I got a good old feeling of warm fuzzies. And that's, that's a lot of what, um, crowdfunding is about. You know, you, you, you're not just doing a cold pre-sale on Amazon. It's, it's, you know, warm fuzzies are a part of it. And that's, that's why we have a community and that's why it's a positive community. 
Now, going to pause. We cannot forget to thank the guys over at BackerKit for sponsoring this episode. BackerKit is a crowdfunding fulfillment software service that helps you take care of all the logistics, spreadsheets, and um, sorting customer data. Not only do they help make customer address changes super easy or changing rewards after someone has already bought, but the power is that they also help you um, do upsells and downsells and take care of all that. So if you don't have a system or platform already set up, um, they've already built that for you. And the best part, you can find them at backerkit.com, but they've actually um, created a discount code for the uncut listeners, which are you guys. So if you go to to uh, check out, use the code UNCUT, U-N-C-U-T. They're going to give you 50% off of their startup services, which is amazing. Um, So if you want to keep selling and keep making money and stay super organized um, after your campaign, they are the guys to go to. I've worked with them on a few campaigns now, and they are amazing. Again, backerkit.com. I think that personally, me, I stick to mainstream products because I like tangible things that I can wrap my brain around. The way that I advertise is like um, Jamstack, for example, is a project I'm on. Um, It's a portable electric guitar amplifier. So you connect it to the base of your guitar and you can play anywhere you want. That's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. And like tangible things to that are like portability. And so like I'm very good at the feature benefit thing if there's a good selling point. When I Mm -hmm. look at a campaign like Cyanide Happiness or Cards Against Humanity, Secret Hitler, these things that are are just wacky and crazy, I think I would have a really difficult time with that. So I'm wondering like when you're going off the beaten path, going to an angle, that is just weird and not social norm. How do you know if you're the right level of funny or even like, you know, validate that you're marketing it the right way? Well, it's it's very similar to a product, whereas, uh, you know, a product is solving an explicit problem or something. Uh, Any sort of intangible or off the beaten path stuff, it's still solving a problem. Um, But in this case, like I view the problem of, you know, for the joking hazard, it could be, hey, you know, let's, card games are boring, or I want something easy to play with uh, while I'm drinking with my friends, or even our show. You know, there are people who have senses of humor, much like myself, and quite a few of them who go, yeah, you know, I I don't like mainstream sites and whatnot. You know, I want something that's kind of cynical and kind of out there. And so it's, it's the same thing instead of selling, you know, wow, this is, uh, this works with, uh, you know, quarter inch cables. It works with XLR. If you want to hook it up to a microphone, in the case of your uh, your electric guitar thing, the Jamstack, but you're selling emotional needs. You're serving emotions. You're serving humor. And so, uh, just like any other product, you know, find a test market, pitch it to a few people, and uh, break it out of games. Um, Rob, so he's the the guy that came up with the idea for the Joking Hazard game, and was kind of the product lead, and uh, he's the maven of it all. He spent an entire year taking the game to every single party he went to, breaking it out on the table, playing with that, and seeing what made people laugh. You know, it's the same thing as watching, you know, someone interact with a new, like, back massager or something. It's still, yet just figure out if it serves the emotional need of someone. And that's that's kind of how you approach it from there. At least that's, that's my thoughts anyway. That makes sense. I think that I just... Uh... I don't know. Right now, I'm like, I'm so good with the obvious tangible. Like, I take a big picture or something and distill that mm-hmm. into like the main selling features. And I guess I just, 
maybe it's just because I haven't been on a creative project like that, that I don't have um, full confidence in my ability to do that. But you're right. Like you break it down, you do the same principles. So yeah, that's cool though. Okay. Um, What is, can you tell me a bit about your show actually? Absolutely. So our show is on its third season. Uh, after the first season, I guess this is a, this is a great tangent. So we put out our first season from the Kickstarter. Uh, it took a while because we were literally learning the process as we went. Uh, but we put it out to YouTube. Um, every video got like two to three million a piece, something like that. So it was, it was better than our usual shorts, which we were uh, excited about. Um, but it wasn't, you know, until we had that show out there with numbers and a successful Kickstarter behind us we started getting actually good deals um, to, to tie in terms of, you know, good versus bad deals. Prior to the Kickstarter, uh, we were offered deals where we could be fired from our own show uh, and we would have to give up 100% ownership of IP. After the Kickstarter, uh, our writing process has not changed. We write what we want and we produce it. And, you know, thankfully our current partner, uh, partner CISO, which is uh, under NBC, they just let us do our thing. Um, that, that's been the, the real value of Kickstarter is, you know, uh, every creative uh, and even, even just prop designer, it feels good to be able to have control of your project, control of your art, and do, do what's, right for you, what's right for your business. But that's a scary thing. Anyone that wants to invest, like let's say you want to take a show from the internet to the TV, is a terrifying thing because, you know, they're... they're essentially a bank giving you a loan to launch a project that'll hopefully return money. Uh, and the value of crowdfunding is it allows you to kind of prove to prospective buyers, hey, this is a really big idea. You know, even, even the same thing for Joking Hazard uh, right there. We, you know, we could have come out and tried to find publishers or something, but if you have a giant Kickstarter campaign, you can say, hey, I've got demand. And you kind of gain the 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 power to do what you want. So uh, I, th I think that's the value there. And to tie it up to the show, I think that's why the show continues to keep get, getting better and better and more involved. Uh, I, I can't believe how proud uh, I am of everything we put out in this season. We've gone from two to 25 employees thanks to these two Kickstarters, which have largely you know built our business. Um, it's great. That's nuts. Um, which show are you talking about? Is it the Explosum Entertainment? Uh, yes. So, okay, cool. uh, I'll link to that in show notes. But Yeah, uh, so I suppose I should expand on that as well. Um, so we have a YouTube channel where we do weekly shorts. Uh, but the, the uh, specific show I'm talking about is the Cyanide and Happiness show. Um, seasons 1 through 3 are on uh, CISO, and we're working on getting it set up uh, to international markets. Um, but that's, that was the original purpose of the first Kickstarter. But that also gave us the funds to start our weekly shorts, which, you know, in their own time mm -hmm. have become as big, if not bigger than the show. Oh, man, I love that. Because, like, when I was just getting confused because I know that for your book, you're interviewing people. And that's what, here I am thinking, like, did you have a show for crowdfunding creators? But no, it's cyanide and happiness stuff. Mm -hmm. So cool. Because I was going to... Um, uh, yeah, I was going to see... I know a couple of quirky people, but do you ever, like, interview people uh not for the book but like uh, recorded medium for youtube or anything uh not recorded medium at the moment um i'll probably be expanding into that as i get closer to uh book launch uh, i just basically have been doing informal talks with you know friends artists 
uh, fellow weirdos in the path in life. But uh, no, I haven't done any uh, proper interviews yet. Cool. Because if you if you want, um, the Pavlock founder does mm-hmm. really weird advertising too. I think he might be a good um, addition to whatever it is you want to do. And they've collectively raised more than seven hundred and fifty thousand through Indiegogo That's Kickstarter. Magic. So. Yeah, Thank so you. let me know, because um, he's, I'm just thinking, like, weird people stick together, right? And Pavlov yep. is weird we marketing, and, um, <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, so cool, because you guys are the, you have the most interesting conversations and lives, it's fantastic, so, um, so I'm wondering, like, since you've been on several campaigns, and you've had the insider scoop with six-figure campaigns, like I have, um, what is your number one piece of advice for anyone getting started and they know that their campaign is going to be more than six figures? Hmm. They know their campaign is going to be more than six figures. <clears throat> there's two ways I can approach that. Because one, there's the creator that is 100% positive their campaign is going to be six figures, but doesn't really have any data behind it other than the excitement of the idea. Uh, but I'll, I'll go with number two on that one, where they have a decent enough, um, decent enough, either fan base, email list, whatever they've, they've done, you know, they've done a lot of the legwork. Um, I guess the, the biggest, the the biggest thing I can think of is, uh, biggest lesson I've learned is that I'm, I'm kind of a stubborn person. Sometimes I, I get the, get the vibe of, Oh, I know it all and whatnot. And, uh, man, that is a dangerous mindset when you're, you're going to be doing a six figure campaign. Um, there, we saved, even in the first campaign, which had, uh, bumps, we found a, a mentor and our friend, uh, James Ashby, who was able to steer us around a lot of stuff that, you know, could have cost us, you know, tens, tens of thousands of dollars in just one simple mistake. So I guess the, the one piece of advice is if you're, if you're sure your campaign's going to be good, find someone who's done it, find a mentor, just email a campaign in the same market space. But there's a lot of hidden uh, little landmines out there that only someone, you know, specifically in that space would have known. Um, and I think that is the biggest advice because, you know, th- there's very simple things, you know, you look at the fidget cube campaign where they didn't have their patent ready. I know. That's, that's, that's a heartbreak day, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's just, yeah. that's a testament to just get to market quickly or just be in the point where you're at, uh, I don't know, just have a prototype and jump into manufacturing right away and don't let your designs go online. Like, just, you know. Well, there's, there's even, uh, I'll have to send you the article afterwards, but you see there, there's companies actively saying their business model is stealing successful Kickstarter ideas and getting them to market faster. Are you serious? Yeah, I'll send it to you after this. It's, it's kind of terrifying, but they... they Basically, they find a campaign in the first week, and if it doesn't have a patent, they immediately take it to Alibaba and try to get to market faster. I would want to bring them on the show just to rip them apart. That's <laughs> horrible. Yeah, it's disgusting. That's it's horrible. It's, it's really shady, but that's the sort of stuff, uh, you know. Uh, it was. I love the Fidget Cube. It's a great campaign, but man, had they had they had someone say, "Hey, I've done this before. Just get a patent," you know. Do you, okay, well, you may not be able to answer this, but, um, <laughs> actually, no, I, I want your perspective on this. Yeah. Um, you get a seller or someone who has this great idea and they're really scared to put information online 
too mm-hmm. soon before their launch, and they're like, do I need to have a full patent, or is patent pending okay? What's your take on that? So, uh, me not being a lawyer, yeah. patent pending, uh, that, that being said, patent pending, I think, would be good enough, as long as there is something in the, the patent registry or ways to show that you are taking effort to defend your business model for these uh, these Kickstarter sharks. Um, their biggest risk to their business model, because uh, at least this particular one is based in the U.S., uh, their biggest threat to their uh, business model is a patent or copyright issue. And so if you preemptively have stuff in place that shows, yes, the patent process has begun, it's very risky for them to put up you know, $20,000, $30,000 to try and scoop your product when they might not be able to move everything. Got it. I like that. I never actually looked at it from that perspective because um, campaigns that I do, I'll say, yeah, let's put patent pending because I assume that from a consumer standpoint, a backer would want to see how far <laughs> into development the process is. And I never looked at it from a uh, someone being able to rip off your product like that. So that's a really good point. Yep, some really some spooky evil companies out there, unfortunately. Oh, please send me that article. I uh, I guarantee they will, will not it. come on the show. But that <laughs> it's just like so. I'm part of a bunch of Amazon groups on Facebook, like for Amazon sellers, and there's this big problem now for gating. Do you know anything about this? Uh, no, tell me more. Okay, so from my understanding is you've developed this product and you're selling on, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And if your product is not gated, meaning that you are the only one that can sell that product, there are going to be a bunch of Chinese manufacturers that like knock mm-hmm. off your product and slash the price. Yeah. So gating is, a, is like a legal process that you have to go through so that you are literally the only one on Amazon that can sell your product or else they just like these... Chinese manufacturers and whoever else is doing this just like destroys your brand on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So that's Oof. a big problem too right now. Oof. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a very pernicious one right there. Yeah. It's like, it makes me sick because I, I just got off the phone with someone, um, my last podcast episode, like he was just going on this tangent about this gating and I was like, oh man, yeah, it's pretty bad. I just saw like a post of from someone today in this group who this is happening to and it based on the comments like it's happening to a lot of these sellers and it's just mm-hmm. like here are the steps you could do to protect your brand that's yeah that's that's the info everyone needs that's scary stuff it really is but i i'm even wondering like from my perspective as like um whatever you call me um consultant or blogger, Mm -hmm. podcaster, whatever, like how much protection do I need for my stuff? So someone doesn't like rip it off. Like I did a random Google search of my podcast. Uh, I was looking up for an episode and about 10 links down, it said Gary Vaynerchuk on crowdfunding uncut. I've Mm -hmm. never had him on my show. So I was really intrigued. I'm like, Oh, was he talking about my show? What's going on? So I clicked through and this random blog had put his face where mine was and made it look like that he was running my podcast i'm like i'm flattered but (laughs) what is happening like that's weird uh properties it's the internet's really changed things you know it's at cnh i mean we we do stick figures they're slightly embellished but they are stick figures and it's very much like playing whack-a-mole uh with all the different knockoff things that kind of one of the the two things we've noticed is one 
uh, as we become, you know, better at engaging our fans and uh, more involved with them, our fans are actually going out and finding uh, people that are, you know, knocking off our stuff or trying to create fake channels, which has been a huge help. But you know, the other thing is just it seems to be you can infinitely play whack-a-mole, but to an extent, one of the best things you have protecting your brand is just your brand. The fact that people will know it's the authentic one and, you know, there's there's a, there's going to be kind of an infinite number of knockoffs. And it's only by serving your core people that you, you can stand a chance of, you know, uh, uh, withstanding, you know, the amount of copying and pirating without making that your full-time job, which means you don't create content. You know what I mean? You kind of... Uh, it's it's a, it's a tough question, but that's that's my view on that particular issue. Or just go speak to a lawyer and be like, yeah. here's my brand. What do I need to do? And what are my liabilities? And then just see what they say. Yeah, I mean, they, they do have lawyer services. Uh, you just hold them on retainer and they go, okay, on Amazon, I want you to take down anything that's a... Uh, take down anything that's a complete copy of us. You know, you pay them a retainer or a percentage of earnings or something like that. And that's an automated way to do it too. We are doing that with uh, joking hazard. That, yeah, that's good. Or you'll see like, I, uh, luckily we fixed this right away, but I hired a web designer and I, um, he had used some stock images without buying the rights to them just because oh. he was using them as placeholders. But right. he didn't expect me to put the website live mm-hmm. when I did. So like within hours, my client came back to me and was like, so the new landing page, I just got a cease and desist. And I was like, Ooh. dude, you can't do that. So now I know with web designers from Upwork, you have to like don't use any of their images, supply all the images just to be safe because like people are like are on it. And I yep. thought I thought they were safe. I thought he maybe being a web designer had access to stock photography, but just you right. just don't want to make that assumption. So we like quickly took down the images, put up pro- like the client ones and we were fine, but oh how scary. <laughs> yeah, it's a lesson well, learned. Yep, yep. That's what this is all about. Yeah. So, man, Derek, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I'm wondering, do you have any famous last words before we wrap this up? Oh, man. Uh, okay. So, I already did. Okay. I know how to take this one. Tell me. The, the three. I'm going to hit the point again. Um Again, I'm kind of a stubborn person, but we would not be where we are today if we hadn't asked for help from other creators. Like that is the one thing I can suggest that will make your life six million times easier because, wow, the the ways we've been impacted by just talking to other people in the community, that's what's allowed us to have the success we have. I really like that point emphasized. Um, and, you know, it, surprisingly, it's not something that, I don't think any other podcast guest has said, except maybe mm. one, but that's out of like your number 90. So, hey, all right. Yeah. This is awesome. And um, so, if people want to learn more about you, I'm sure we're going to have you back on the show to like closer to your book launch, sixfigurecrowdfunding.com. Mm-hmm. But um, how, if people want to work with you or get in contact with you, where what's the best place to send them? Real straightforward. Just Derek, D E R E K, at sixfigurecrowdfunding.com. 
so easy. And we'll put that in the show notes again if you for some reason can't spell Derek, but D-E-R-E-K-E-K. Wow. There I go. (laughs) D-E-R-E-K. This is my third podcast today, so I'm just like trying to enunciate everything properly, but um, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Thanks a lot for being on the show. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure. It's always great. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Should you actually be in the middle of planning your crowdfunding campaign, which I assume most of you are, you should head over to crowdfundinguncut.com and grab the physical product launch checklist, which goes over all of the strategies and system I've used step-by-step to plan a campaign over six months and knock it out of the park. Um, And apart from that, if you are digging the show, please do go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio and leave an honest review for crowdfunding uncut and that way the show could be found by more people and apart from that thank you once again for listening and we will see you next week are you launching a product on either kickstarter or shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process hi there my name is kirsten the ceo of launch and scale to date we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers if you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk you should check out our product launchpad plp is a proven accelerator that takes you step by step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launch pad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launch pad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.